Hi, everybody. Welcome to Shasai Podcast, conversations between scholars from around the world who study childhood, youth, and related institutions historically. As an official production of the Society for the History of Children and Youth, you can subscribe to these shows through iTunes or Google Play. Written and visual materials associated with each episode are available at our website, shcy.org. Enjoy. There we go. Recording has started. Uh, my name is... Oh, I heard some feedback. Okay. Um, we should be okay right now. How's that? All right. Uh, my name is Franz de Bruin, and I'm a recently retired professor of English uh, literature at the University of Ottawa in Canada. Um, I'm here to, today to speak with my friend and colleague, James Brooke Smith, uh, who has written a book about youth culture or, or counterculture at British public schools over the last 300 years from the 1700s to the present. Uh, the title of James's book is Gilded Youth, Privilege, Rebellion, and the British Public School. Uh, James joined the English department here in, in Ottawa after receiving his undergraduate degree from the University of, of Glasgow in, um, in philosophy and English, and completed his doctorate at the New York University. James is interested in a variety of different subjects, uh, British literature in the last 200 years, uh, science fiction, film, and the history of education, uh, all of which he approaches from a cultural studies point of view. Uh, before going any further, James, uh, maybe we should clarify the meaning of the phrase uh, public school in your title, since that has a very different meaning in North America than it does in, in England, uh, which is the main focus of your book. Yes, um, counterintuitively, in Great Britain, public school really means a private school. Um, these are very old institutions, many of which were founded in the late medieval and Renaissance period, um, which today um, are exclusive elite private schools, which um, cost a lot of money to attend. Um, but originally, many of these schools were founded as um, charitable foundations for the education of um, poor and emerging middle-class uh, families. Um, so the public aspect of these schools comes from the legal provisions um, that were put in place uh, many hundreds of years ago. Over time, however, um, when a system of state education was founded in Great Britain, um, the term public was reserved for these particular kinds of schools, as well as what we would consider private schools. Um, uh, schools run on, along business lines for profit. Um, today, they're included within the umbrella term independent schools and are um, they are distinct from what we call state schools in Great Britain. Yeah, I know that uh, in the 18th century, which is, a, which is the... Uh literary period that I've studied over the years, uh, private education was education in the home, and the, the term public was reserved for these schools where, where, where children were sometimes sent. Anyway, James, uh, I, I gave you a rather impersonal introduction uh, uh, at the outset, focusing on your prof professional uh, qualifications chiefly. 
I wonder if you could tell our listeners a little about a little more about yourself personally, because I think your personal background helps explain why you were drawn to the subject of, of youth rebellion. What what drew you to this topic and what motivated you to write this book? Um, well, um, I myself went to um, a public school, um, a very old, um, quite um, expensive elite private boarding school called Shrewsbury School, which was founded in the um, 16th century. Um, was attended by various luminaries such as Sir Philip Sidney or Charles Darwin, and is a very kind of um, elegant, large-scale campus um, slightly outside of the town um, that I grew up in. So I have first-hand experience of this kind of institution and the kind of milieu um, created by the environment, the topography of these uh, schools. Um, I went to one of these schools and I didn't like it. Um, I felt ill at ease in the, um, the setting of privilege um, and kind of um, the ways in which the school held itself uh, apart from the town as a whole. Um, there's a very particular topography to Shrewsbury, the town I grew up in, where the school is um, on one side of the river, the town is on the other, the school is on a fairly high hill on the riverbank, um, and whilst there are public access pathways through it, it's very much enclosed off from the world around it. And as a kid, I felt rather strange about that um, and pushed back against it. Um, and engaged in various youthful activities, which in most settings would be deemed somewhat unremarkable, but in the um, context of the school were acts of rebellion and, you know, kind of acting out, being into various kinds of music and countercultural practices. Um, so I was interested in my own experience, but also the way that fitted into the longer history of private education in Great Britain. Um, I was partly prompted also to um, dig further into the topic because public school education became much more of a kind of topic in the popular press when David Cameron became Prime Minister of Great Britain. Um, he was the, um, the, the last in a long line of not just privately educated, but Etonian prime ministers. Um, a third of all British prime ministers went to one single private school. So my own um, experience of schooling um, made me interested in the subject, but it led me out into the wider kind of history and sociology behind why these schools are the way they are and why they hold such a position of power and also kind of cultural allure within British history and society. So speaking of uh, Eton, which, uh, as you point out, is the most elite of all these um, British public schools, um, near the uh, beginning of your book, you quote uh, someone who, uh, uh, who was a student or a pupil at, at uh, Eton, Cyril Connolly, a literary critic and writer who wrote in the 1930s. And um, Connolly argued that the boys who attended these schools, these public schools, were afflicted by what he called a permanent adolescence as a result of their experiences. And I'll just read you a couple of sentences that you quote in your book. 
This is Connolly. The experiences undergone by boys at the great public schools, their glories and disappointments, are so intense as to dominate their lives and to arrest their development. From these, it results that the greater part of the ruling class remains adolescent, school-minded, self-conscious, cowardly, sentimental, and in the last analysis, homosexual. Uh, could you comment on what, what Conley talks about here on the intense sense of identity that these schools created in their pupils and, and, and also the psychological effects of their school experience? Yes, um, Con that quote from Colin Connolly um, really is kind of one of the central hooks of the book um, because what Colony Colony, uh, sorry, Connolly describes in that quote and in the, the book from which it's taken uh, more generally, uh, Enemies of Promise, um, he describes this interesting state of psychological ambivalence that many ex-public school boys have evinced in their memoirs and um, interviews in later life. A mixture of kind of nostalgic reverie for the elegant grounds and architecture, the sense of camaraderie, the intimacy uh, that come from life in the hothouse environment of an elite boarding school. Okay. But on the other side of that ambivalent balance, there's this sense of resentment, um, of a kind of hatred of an institution that shapes one's character, uh, that does so through various kinds of discipline, whether that be kind of um, verbally articulated or even in the form of corporal punishment. Um, so Connolly in the 1930s is looking back to his 1920s experience at Eton with this mixture of nostalgia and resentment that, that is characteristic of many public school memoirs. And I think it's important to um, take cognizance of the kind of environment that Connolly's describing. Um, Irving Goffman, the great Canadian sociologist, included British public schools alongside prisons, naval academies, monasteries, as examples of total institutions, wraparound environments designed to shape people's characters. So there's a kind of intensity to everyday life in a boarding school in an elite boarding school, which simply doesn't um, apply to um, most kinds of state education, which might be formative, which might leave a kind of stamp on people's identity and character, but aren't the same kind of hothouse microcosmic world. Um, so that's one of the reasons why Connolly's statement is so resonant, I think, because it gets to the ambivalent psychology that many ex-public school boys inherited over the course of the 19th and 20th centuries, uh, an ambivalence based on this kind of oscillation between nostalgia and resentment. Um, so this hothouse environment that you, or school environment that you're, you've just been talking about uh, also produced, and this perhaps get, gets to the nub of your book, um, a number of fascinating subcultures and behaviors amongst the boys over, over the last two centuries, sometimes arcane, occasionally even lurid in nature. Can you talk a little bit about some of these? Yeah, certainly. Um, so I think it, it pays again to um, refer back to Irving Goffman's account of the total institution. Um, these boarding schools, especially after the 19th century, where they are reformed to be much more 
authoritarian, uh, disciplined, centrally planned, um, timetabled and regulated. Um, have a very specific and rigid kind of disciplinary structure to them. Um, but what Goffman also pointed out was that in total institutions, one often finds what he calls an underlife, a kind of quieter, secret, um, unofficial domain of the institution, which is devoted to expressions of freedom, um, pleasure, um, different kinds of communication and identity formation that aren't subject to the authority of the institution. Um, and it's in these kind of darker corners of institutional life um, that boys at these elite private schools created their own subcultural forms of identity and self-expression. Um, some examples would include um, the culture of romantic friendship um, and even uh, queer sexuality that emerged um, in the boarding houses over the course of 18th, 19th and 20th centuries. Sometimes this might be expressed in quite coercive um, forms of bullying. Um, if you read some of the, read between the lines in some of the 19th century um, memoirs of boarding school life, you can detect a fairly grisly underworld of sexual bullying that's taking place in these schools. Um, but there are also more kind of liberating, um, free expressions of homosexual relationships in the schools at different times. Once we hit the kind of 1910s and 20s, um, and Cyril Connolly talks about this in um, his memoir, Enemies of Promise, the culture of aestheticism um, becomes an important way for boys who are not interested in sports and games to stake an identity for themselves in the school. So you start to get little clubs and cliques forming around intellectual magazines, uh, the writing of certain kinds of poetry, um, enjoyment of certain kinds of literary traditions, and they're often expressed in terms of dandyism um, and um, queer forms of self-display. Um, so those are some of the examples of the ways in which the underworld expresses itself in the forms of dress, uh, sexuality, um, and even kinds of literary and aesthetic behavior. But as I started to pick the thread of this line of research up, um, the, the subcultural world of the school goes way back into the, the 18th century as well, before the schools became um, more disciplined and more organized. Um, at the end of the 18th century, um, both preceding but also sparked by the French Revolution, there's a whole series of armed uprisings in um, uh, elite public schools, um, often as a kind of expression of pupil freedom. Um, so there were cases at Winchester, at Eton, at Rugby, at Shrewsbury, basically all of the most prestigious ancient public schools um, experienced um, armed rebellions at different times in which the pupils would occupy the schools, often would fight um, physically with their masters. Um, sometimes the militia would be called in. Um, and one of the things that I managed to piece together through the research is that this is one of the emergent expressions of a new kind of identity within 
British culture, which is that of the adolescent. Um, they're kind of staking a claim to rights as young men, independent from masters and older people. Um, so I think by looking into this subcultural world of the school, the underlife, we can see um, a strain of youth culture emerging over the course of the later 18th and 19th centuries in a place where we wouldn't necessarily expect to find it in an elite private boarding school. Um, one of the things that interested me about the, the book was the way uh, was the way in which the the uh, the public school develops as an as an institution, the historical stages of development from a distinctly what you call laissez-faire approach um, to governing the students in the 18th century and a much more controlled and programmed um, approach in the middle and later, uh, well, the later 19th and, and early 20th centuries, uh, much more controlled approach to the formation and education of these boys. Could you tell, could you tell us a little bit about this historical uh, progression? Yes, certainly. Um, so what I was describing there with the... Um the armed rebellions that take place in the second half of the 18th century um, are enabled by the culture of the schools um, in a context which sees young people, the young men who, att who attend these schools, between the ages roughly of, say, 10 and 19 or so, um, as um, young gentlemen. Okay, not principally as children or indeed as adolescents yet, although that's an emerging identity that I think starts to take shape within the schools. Um, but there's a kind of aristocratic assumption that these are young gentlemen in training and as such um, have a certain kind of freedom from um, the control of their masters. There's also an interesting class dynamic here. In the, in the later 18th century, um, the public school system is much smaller than it will become in the 19th century and is attended by a very elite section of society, aristocrats, large landowners, um, the, the, the upper reaches of an emerging haute bourgeoisie. Um, and these uh, young gentlemen are socially superior to their masters. So there's a kind of hands-off approach to schooling whereby the school is responsible for inculcating Latin and Greek and some small religion in their pupils. But once lessons are over, the boarding house is a kind of self-governing republic of young men, gentlemen in training. Um, and there's very little oversight um, and Governance takes place via the older boys themselves, the prefects, and they rule over their band of younger pupils or fags. Um, and this breeds a kind of unruly, slightly libertarian aristocratic culture, which breeds this kind of um, revolutionary uprising from time to time. As you shift into um, the Victorian era, um, due to a whole range of different cultural, um, changing cultural contexts, um, we start to get much more of a focus on training the characters of these young men, as well as instilling them with Greek and Latin and a sense of leadership and superiority. Um, adolescence as a period of life becomes moralized in a new way. Um, and teachers, 
um, start to see it as being prey to certain kinds of sinfulness, certain kinds of misbehavior that are freighted with a new kind of moral seriousness. Masturbation, uh, homosexuality, um, etc. become much more of a preoccupation um, as the 19th century progresses. Um, and as a result, the organization of the school itself changes. They tend to become more centralized. In the 18th century, young schoolboys would live um, with what were called dames, um, women who ran boarding houses in the local town. Um, by the time you get to the middle of the 19th century, and especially later in the century, um, that becomes centralized and people live on campus in boarding houses where they can be surveilled um, and monitored. Um, so you get this new kind of emerging disciplinary architecture in the 19th century, which breeds this much more fervent um, and um, surreptitious underlife of sexuality, but also of um, interest in the arts. Um, in many respects, the later 19th century public school is a fairly philistine institution. Uh, Greek and Latin are still preeminent within the curriculum. And for a young man interested in English literature, the arts, philosophy, even kind of um, non-classical history, these become uh, private pursuits that you must um, pursue on your own time, um, after lessons are done. Um, so you get that shift to a much more disciplinarian Victorian world. And that um, world doesn't really start to come apart until the second half of the 20th century. Um, it's in the atmosphere of the post-World War II welfare state when a new state education system comes into being and you get this new set of shifting mores then that elite private boarding schools reform themselves again and they do away with the prefect fagging system. They open up their curricula to a much broader range of subjects and we get a much more liberal ideal of uh, what young gentlemen in tra training should, should be doing. Um, so that's the kind of broad overview of how these institutions change. Your book, um, uh, it, it has to be said, is very focused on is focused on a on a pretty privileged and, and exclusively white male segment of uh, British society. Um, so, how would you justify all that attention uh, to some of our listeners who may not may come from very different backgrounds and life experiences, whether whether in terms of gender or uh, ethnic background, racialized visibility, or socioeconomic class, among other things? Um, so how does your book speak to, or how might it speak to their experiences, or what interest might it have for the, for these kinds of listeners? Yeah, I think that's a good question. There's a sense of overexposure <laughs> in relation to um, English public schools, um, largely to do with the fact that the cultural industries in Great Britain, um, politics, um, a wide range of professions are even to this day disproportionately uh, stocked with uh, privately educated graduates. Um, so there's a kind of cultural feedback mechanism whereby um, stories about um, and focus on the culture and um, preoccupations of this elite gets magnified and perpetuated. Um, 
part of writing this book was an attempt to show how that takes place. <laughs> um, but in doing so, I'm inevitably adding more analysis to the same um, the same historical problem. Um, so yes, I understand, and I quite explicitly address that this is a book about white privileged masculinity in Great Britain and how it's reproduced via this particular uh, social mechanism of private education. Um, but at the same time, um, I think there are there are interesting ways in which this system has been expanded beyond just um, the British ruling class. Um, so um, the boarding school, the English public school becomes in the 19th century, a kind of transportable template in many ways and is exported um, with the British empire around the world. And so it becomes a mechanism for training elites in the Indian subcontinent, in the Caribbean, in sub-Saharan Africa, um, even in uh, Canada and North America. Um, so we see the ways in which this model is transplanted to other contexts um, and is challenged um, in various ways. I talk a little bit in the book about the example of C.L.R. James, the famous um, Trinidadian historian, cultural critic, um, and memoirist. Um, and he talks eloquently in his book, Beyond the Boundary, about um, being educated in the system of the English public school as a young black boy from Trinidad. Um, and the ways in which an alien culture is effectively foist, foisted upon him from a very young age. An alien culture which he comes to love. <laughs> he becomes a avid reader of Thackeray, um, a um, lover of the game of cricket. But James um, wonderfully illustrates the kind of ambivalence that goes with that. Um, and in effect, he uses the um, language of the public schools against itself. Uh, the high ideals of someone like Thomas Arnold to do with um, gentlemanly fellowship. Um, and what CLR James points out is that the public school system, um, the Arnoldian model of uh, godliness and good learning, um, didn't take itself seriously enough and didn't properly um, open itself up to um, uh, underprivileged and uh, racialized uh, voices. Um this this sort of raises it raises an interesting uh, question because uh, uh, the, the the public the English public school or or or, or independent school as we call it today uh, uh, lives on um, <clears throat> despite uh, the, the prediction of of the novelist Graham Greene in 1934 um, he quite confidently predicted in the introduction to a collection of essays about, um, about public school life, the demise of the English public school. And uh, he, he begins by apologizing for, for his, his collection saying, uh, such an odd system of education does not demand a pompous memorial, i.e. the collection of essays that he is, he is writing. And he goes on to say, whatever the political changes in this country during the next few years, one thing is almost certain, 
the class distinctions will not remain unaltered, and the public school as it exists today will disappear. So I guess my question is to you is, uh, what happened? <laughs> that's, a, that's a very good question, and it's, it's a perennial question in the history of elite private education in Great Britain. Um, there are various points at which it looks like genuine reform might take place. Um, and yet, on each occasion, the public schools seem to slip through the net and retain their privileged position within society and retain the mystique, um, the, the glamour that goes with them. One point comes um, in the 1860s with a series of government commissions, the Clarendon and the Taunton Commission, um, which look into... Um, the whole range of different educational um, modes in Great Britain um, and the public schools um, remain a separate system. Okay. The next really key moment comes after Graham Greene is writing um, at the end of World War II with the foundation of the welfare state um, and the Great Beverage Report, which set up um, what he called the um, the five giants uh, on the road to reconstruction, which are the reform of education, healthcare, social security, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Um, but interestingly, at that point, the public schools were dealt with separately from the state system and were kept on this separate track. There was an idea that there would be more scholarships funded through local education authorities to send bright working class children into the private sector. But that system, that, that, that scheme never really took off. Um, and so we get the private system existing on a separate track um, and retaining the ability of wealthy and affluent families to be able to parachute their children out of the state system, the comprehensive education system that was set up. Um, so yes, Graham Greene gets it massively wrong. Um, and his, his sentiment was shared by many people on the intellectual left in the 1930s. The demise of the public school system seemed inevitable. Um, and to this day, um, one of the ways in which the private schools managed to slip through the net is by being very capable at reforming themselves. Um, in, I'm not gonna say completely cosmetic ways, but in ways that bend with the movement of the times without yielding on the basic privilege of being able to pay for better resources, better contacts, um, access to Oxbridge and elite professions. So this is part of the um, overall history that I was discussing earlier, that um, especially in the 1950s and 60s, um, private schools reform themselves um, and introduce a much wider range of subjects um, so Greek and Latin stay, but they supplement it with English literature, history, geography, science and technology. Um, and today, um, Mandarin, Russian, philosophy, business studies. Um, it's a cornucopia of educational possibilities, which is generated by the fact that uh, parents pay £30,000 a year to send their children there. They just have a vastly greater um, amount of resources. And so today's private schools are often um, fairly liberal in ethos. 
they have a kind of social conscience attached to them. Um, they offer this range of experience whereby uh, young people can both get excellent um, qualifications, but also round out their CVs with volunteering experience, travel, all kinds of things. Um, so in part, the private schools have maintained their status by becoming excellent <laughs> and yet remaining exclusive. Um, and that is one of the biggest challenges that any reforming government faces, I think, to this day. Maybe we could con conclude with uh, uh, something about the the uh, the uh, the place that these schools have in the in the in the popular imagination. Um, you, you, one of the sources for your book were the, is the tradition of fiction that arose in the 19th century about private schools, or, or public schools, I should say, um, beginning with Tom Brown's school days in 1857. Um, do public schools still hold the same cultural appeal um, that, they, that they did uh, uh, in the mid-19th to early 20th century? Yeah, that's a good question, because the tradition of boarding school fiction, um, I don't think exists in the same way that it did roughly from the middle of the 19th century to the middle of the 20th century. Um, it was a hugely popular genre of fiction, which wasn't just published in the form of novels, but also kind of magazine stories in uh, uh, boys' magazines, Gem and Magnet. George Orwell writes um, wonderfully about them. Um, and they were largely consumed by working class children. These were very cheap uh, two penny magazines um, that were a kind of gateway to literacy for many um, young working class state educated children. Um, and they created this mystique of the private school system, which according to Orwell, um, turned these young readers against the interests of their own class. They venerated these kind of top hatted, um, um, privately educated, um, ruling class as a result of it. Um, so today, the mystique, I think, lives on, but in a much more um, globalized sense. Today, um, private schools in Great Britain are attended by a high percentage of overseas and foreign students um, from Russia, from Europe, but also from the Far East, principally. Um, and I think there's a kind of there's a still a kind of series of cultural signifiers that um, play well to a foreign audience of the ties, the straw boaters, the elegant architecture. It's a kind of iconic set of signifiers right there, um, which were boosted briefly by the popularity of Harry Potter. Um, but within Great Britain itself, um, the ways in which um, youth culture is adopted by privately educated graduates is very different than it once was. Um, um, Mike Savage, the sociologist, um, has a wonderful um, term for the ways in which the elite in Britain present itself today as what he calls the ordinary elite. Today, um, elites, privately educated elites, tend to focus more on um, the hard work they put in rather than the privilege they have. Um, they tend to be uh, cultural omnivores rather than snobs. Um, they tend to have a wide range of cultural references from you know, rap and hip hop or indie music rather than just the refined exclusive tastes of a prior elite. So there's a kind of um, 
demotic language that the elite has learned to speak um, to itself and to others within Great Britain that effaces um, the role of private education and effaces the role of elite status itself. So I think the position of the public school within society today is is more complex than it was in the era of its um, cultural dominance between the Victorian and the mid-20th century. Well, uh, there's much more we could talk about, and, and I've, I've found your subject in, uh, very interesting from the time that, it, that you first started working on it. Uh, so I'd like to say, however, that we, we, we do need to conclude. Uh, and for me personally, what a pleasure it's been to take part in, in this interview. I think the book you, uh, you, you have, have written has turned out so well. It's, it's very readable and engaging, as well as uh, uh, informative. So it's been, a, it's been an honor for me to, uh, to, to uh, uh, do this interview with you. Thank you very much. Thank you, friends. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to Shusai Podcasts. You can find more materials and features from the Society for the History of Children and Youth online, shcy.org.